every once in a while, there's a podcast that is an absolute must listen. And this podcast with Nate Hagens is one of those podcasts. He is the director of the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future. And the way that he looks at the world and helps us understand the world through the lens of energy consumption and production and where that curve might lead us, which is to a place he calls the Great Simplification is really astounding, important, and mind-expanding to understand some of the fundamentals that have created the culture that we're in and might lead us into the next story, the next chapter of where we are going. So without further ado, enjoy this podcast with Nate Hagens. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Up first, we have Let's Get Checked. One of the things that's very difficult to understand without actually getting checked is where your hormone levels are. Whether you're a guy or a girl, it doesn't matter. Hormones are affecting so many aspects of your life from physical performance to sexual performance to even mood. So many things are dependent upon our hormones. And Let's Get Checked is one of the best ways to actually figure this out. They're going to send you a home test kit. There'll be some saliva, a finger prick for blood test, and then you send it in and the clinicians review it. And then once the clinicians review it, let's say you order the male hormone complete test and you'll get testosterone, estradiol, prolactin, free androgen, cortisol, and sex hormone binding globulin, all of which are really important to painting the picture. Recently, my wife got tested, Vilana, and she discovered that there were some tweaks that she needed to make to her hormone profile. It's something that is very important to actually get a handle on and understand if you really want to optimize your performance. So if you're interested, go to trylgc.com slash Aubrey Marcus and use code Aubrey Marcus for 25% off your home test kit. Once again, trylgc.com slash Aubrey Marcus. Code Aubrey Marcus for 25% off your home test kit. Next up, we have Apollo Neuro. Now, Apollo is a stress relief wearable that is designed to help you become a calmer, more mindful version of yourself through touch therapy. And it does this by providing these warm, pulsing sensations that actually go through the device. And it's really interesting to feel the effects that this has on your nervous system. It's something that Vailana and I will use both when we're in a medicine journey or a meditation or sometimes a breathwork experience. But honestly, it doesn't have to be during any of those experiences. The effects of the Apollo wearable will be noticeable whether you're actually paying attention to it or not, or whether you're in one of those transformational or transcendental states or not. Some of the results of the clinical trials that they've done on Apollo Neuro have shown that users experience 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety, 19% more time in deep sleep, up to 25% increases in focus and concentration. And all of these different effects are based on different programs and different pulses that the Apollo Neuro actually pushes through in the vibrational mechanism of the device itself. Just like our brain waves pulse at different frequencies that allows us to actually access different states of consciousness. This is working in not exactly the same way, but it's working in a similar way, pushing out different frequencies of pulses that are sensed by the skin and received by the nervous system. It's a really cool device developed by neuroscientists and doctors. You may have heard Dr. Dave Rabin talk about it on my podcast already. 
So if you're interested, go to apolloneuro.com slash Aubrey. That's Apollo, N-E-U-R-O.com slash Aubrey, and you will get $40 off of the wearable. And finally, we have on it. This is the foundation where I've put all of the information, tools, techniques, everything that I could think of to help optimize the human body. That's where it lives, onit.com. So please check it out. We have so many different things from Alpha Brain to optimize cognitive performance to Shroom Tech Sport to optimize physical performance to the total human, which is another level of what people think of when they think of a multivitamin to all of the training methodologies and training tools and even just the information that we have available at the Onnit Academy blog. So please check it out. Onnit.com slash Aubrey gives you 10% off of all of these tools and all of these training programs. And it's truly the best that myself, all the top athletes, all the top doctors could come up with. These are things that people can use to just bring themselves to the very best version of themselves. So check out onit.com slash Aubrey to save 10%. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Nate Higgins. Well, here we are. And we're here because there has been a massive surge of available energy that has allowed humans to do shit like we're doing right now which hopefully is a good utilization of energy i believe it is but the story you tell is a story that's on the one hand so obvious as to the history of progress technology our kind of arc as a humankind so obvious it's related to energy however we've tricked ourselves into forgetting that everything that we've accomplished is based on us taking resources, carbon, mostly carbon resources from the earth, and then utilizing that excess surplus energy. So when I saw your work, I was like, oh yeah. But somehow, even for me, it avoided like piercing the veil of consciousness where I really understood it. So if you could, and you have a great you know animation about it called The Great Simplification, I believe, um, if you could bring us into this story, this true story about human progress as it relates to energy. Thank you. It's good to be here, Aubrey. Um, it's a huge question. I've spent 20 years researching how all this stuff fits together. And you're right. Our culture is energy blind in the sense that we look at our daily lives and we measure things in money or technology and we don't recognize the uh, ubiquity and power of energy in our everyday lives. Um, so until 10,000 years ago, humans lived in small tribes in Africa. We didn't have possessions really. So once the climate warmed and stabilized, we started to do agriculture in place. And so we started to maximize the amount of surplus we got instead of minimize our time. Like back in the day, hunter-gatherers would only work 10 or 15 hours a week gaining food, but then we switched in a huge way and that kind of changed everything. Energy is so important in nature. Energy could be argued to be the currency of life because if you are like a cheetah and you spend calories chasing a gazelle, you need to get uh, an investment payoff uh, the calories in the gazelle, mm. uh, and those cheetahs, those biological organisms that have a surplus 
of energy received versus the energy they invested have an evolutionary advantage. Uh, they have more energy available for their metabolism, for reproduction, for raising their offspring, et cetera. I, I, I remember watching many times. I love cheetahs. I mean, I think a lot of kids love cheetahs, the fastest land mammal, you know, like we get all excited about it and they're on a chase, they're on a hunt. And then they don't get what they're after. They mm -hmm. don't get the gazelle. The gazelles are fast as hell too. And so sometimes they get away. And then you just see the cheetah panting. And then you have some David Attenborough character being like, well, that was a bad one. If he gets a couple more of those, he might not make it through this drought. You know what I mean? And, and you start to, that was, I guess, my first understanding of like, oh man, this is a high risk game. You spend that much energy ramping up to 70 miles an hour trying to catch this gazelle. The gazelle gets away you may only get a couple more shots, a couple more sprints before your energy starts to deplete. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I'm a little older than you, but I would, my favorite show growing up was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Like mm -hmm. on Sunday nights, you mm -hmm. would see Marlon Perkins talk about the cheetah and the gazelle or whatever else. And to this day, that's what motivates my work is the 10 million or so other species that we share the planet with because everything is connected and we've also lost sight of that. Uh, um, and we can talk about that if you want. But getting back to the energy thing, humans then started to transform and expand around the world because we had surplus. We would grow more food than we could eat. And so then we had warriors and accountants and priests and uh, different vocations because we didn't need uh, um, we had more food than we needed to, at the moment. Fast forward. And you had a, you had a term for that. And I just want to get that clear. It's like, that was like interiorly kinetic energy. And then there was like exokinetic uh, energy. Right. So animals consume energy like a cheetah will eat a gazelle yeah. and the, the, the meat will be transformed in the body endosomatically. Endosomatically. Yeah. So humans now we, uh, you and I eat, uh, 2,500 calories a day or something like that. The average American consumes 2,000 calories of kilocalories of food per day. Mm -hmm. Actually, we use 3,500 calories, but a lot of it's wasted. But in the body, we consume 2,000, 2,200 kilocalories a day, but we consume 100 times that. We consume 215,000 kilocalories a day with the lights and the shopping centers and the embodied energy in these materials. Everything in this room required energy. So exosomatically, outside of our bodies, humans today are waving this magic wand of excess energy use beyond what our bodies need to survive based on our infrastructure and our, our modes of, of consumption and supply chains. Yeah, so the, so the first energy boom was increasing the surplus of endosomatic energy, which was just available food. Yep. And then the second big boom, and that, and that got a lot of shit done. Yep. I mean, we're talking civilizations were built. Yes. Because of that, you know. And then the second big boom was this exosomatic energy when we started to be able to harvest energy and create technological energy. Well, we, we could create technology for many millennia and centuries using the natural flows of the earth. Uh, we would chop down trees or build uh, harnesses for oxen. And, and do, the trees would provide warmth, which is another form of energy, right? Everything in our economies and everything in our past uh, economies requires energy to 
uh, invent, to mine, to create, to deliver, to maintain, to repair when it's broken, and to dispose of. There's energy used at every single stage. And the reason that you and I are talking about this, um, because it's becoming aware to people in the world that, my God, we might have a little bit of an energy issue. And since you and I have been alive, we've had more energy every single year as a global culture Every single year, with the exception of 2020, which was COVID, 2009, the financial crisis, and a couple years in the 1970s. Um, but but let's get back to the the grand arc. Mm-hmm. So um, we uh, in 17th century, 18th century Europe was getting up against the maximum levels of what uh, they could support with the hydrological flows of farming and. So like they had windmills, they had, you know, sluices that would take river water and turn wheels. They had some ways. They to had harness, some ways. They had some ways to harness nature. But then when trees were starting to um, they were starting to run out of trees for timber and fuel in England, and then we puzzled out how to vertically farm, which is to drill under the earth and pull out uh, fossil deposits of ores and energy. So that began the industrial age where we apply thousands of units of energy that is from underground to replace things that humans used to do manually or with draft animals Mm -hmm. at a fraction of the cost. So um, since then, since the mid 1800s to now, we've been on this explosion of economic growth And we assume that it's due to technology. Technology does amazing things for us, but technology is mostly a vector for accessing this incredibly powerful fossil sunlight, which we are extracting now in the form form of coal, oil, and natural gas, 10 million times faster than it was trickle charged by daily photosynthesis. I mean, just to point out what oil is, oil is found in regions that were ancient oceans in the earth. And the algae, phytoplankton, that are photosynthetic organisms in the ocean, they they grow from the sun and then they die and they fall to the bottom of the ocean. And over tens of millions of years, they're compressed and geology changes and it turns into oil. And it so happens, especially where you live, but our entire nation is one of the most geologically uh, rich areas in the world. Um, you know, we uh, have used more oil, coal, and natural gas in the United States than any other country in the last 20 years, in the last 50 years since the dawn of time. A barrel of oil, Aubrey, has 1,700 kilowatt hours worth of energy potential stored in it. You or I, digging ditches, hauling wheelbarrows, chopping wood, working for nine hours a day generate around six tenths of one kilowatt hour. You're pretty (laughs) fit and strong. You probably do a little bit more than that, but pretty much one whole, one whole kilowatt. Okay. All right. Let's be real. One whole kilowatt hour. But if you, if you compare that to what (laughs) is in a barrel of oil that we pay $90 for, it would do four and a half years of yours or my work. Wow. We pay $90 for that. So the average American uses 17 of those barrels of oil per year and another 40 barrel of oil equivalents of gas and coal. 
So we use 57 barrels of oil worth of work from, and we're paying pennies for it. Mm -hmm. And there are barrels of oil that are being burnt in factories in China to create products that we import. That's another 17 barrels. So the average American consumes 72 barrels of oil per year. This stuff is on human timescales indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. So globally, think about this. Globally, we use 100 billion barrel of oil equivalents of fossil energy every year in the global economy. And each one of those barrels is worth around four and a half years of human work. So in addition to the 5 billion real human workers, we have around 500 billion fossil workers that are doing work for us, heavy lifting, machinery, transport across oceans in the sky. Um, and we all take that for granted because we just pay for the cost of extraction plus a little profit for the oil company, not the cost of creation nor the cost of pollution. Mm. So our culture ignores this fundamental reality that our lifestyles and our expectations are fully dependent on a finite and depleting fossil resource. Um, we are becoming aware culturally in the media and in our looking at everyday reality that the pollution from fossil fuels is creating a problem. Mm -hmm. Climate change, ocean acidification, things like that. But I think our culture has yet to have a conversation about, wow, what, hap what do we do once this stuff starts to decline every year instead of going up every year? And that's starting to happen, right? It's costing more energy to access less available energy. Like we're having to dig deeper, deep water wells. We're having to frack for natural gas. We're having to push harder with more energy to get relatively less energy than it used to be maybe 50 years ago, right? That's exactly right. Um, so I wrote my PhD thesis on the concept of net energy, which is measuring the cost of energy, not in dollar terms, but in energy and resource terms. And so it takes energy to get energy out. And the more energy that we have to allocate to the energy sector itself, the less is available for Disneyland and hospitals and shopping centers and universities. And that's happening now. Don't uh, take away the log jammer. That's all I'm saying, man. I, I don't know what the log jammer is. You've never is. been to the log jammer? <laughs> no. Wait, is that from the dude? Is it, is it the Matterhorn? The log jammer is another one. The, the log jammer. It's a water ride. Okay. You go through and everybody gets splashed at the end. I was Pirates of the Caribbean is all Pirates I remember. Pirates of the Caribbean yeah. is good. Um, they got to stay in this new world we're building. I understand. We have to make some we have to make some cuts. All I'm saying is the log jammer is one of the last to go. Your vote is noted. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted that recorded. But you bring up a point and uh, in I haven't laid out the logic yet of why this is happening, but you've, your point is that we're going to have to make choices because we can't probably have access to a growing amount of energy in the future because we're spending so much of it and not just energy, but also materials like copper uh, and fossil water aquifers. We're running into limits. Um, so just talk about oil for a second. The United States has more oil wells drilled in our country than the rest of the world combined. It's like a pincushion. 
And we are one of the top three oil producers in the world with Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, but I would argue that we've used the best first. We've effectively drained America first. And oil production peaked in the United States in 1970 and then had a 40-year decline. And then we'd started to frack and we accessed oil at the source. The source rock is light tight oil or shale oil. It's very expensive. It depletes very rapidly. There's a lot of it left, but it's, there's nothing left after that. Mm-hmm. So right now in the United States, if we were to stop drilling for environmental reasons, for affordability reasons, for recession reasons, our oil production would decline 40% in the first year and another 25% a second year and another 20% after that because the pressure and the, the, the oil dynamics, these wells deplete 80% in the first year and a half. Mm. And so we have to keep drilling in order to maintain our production. But I would argue that the world hit its all-time maximum of oil production in 2018 uh, in November. And part of that could be due to COVID, but the underlying decline rate of all the wells in the world, in all the countries of the world, is around 6%. So that means that all the wells drilled before this year are declining on average at 6% of their production every year. And so we have to invest in more new wells um, or develop new technology and find new fields to offset that decline. Yeah. So one thing, just want to double click on the idea of us being energy blind, because Mm. this is fairly obvious information, actually, when you receive it. It's like, oh, yeah, but very few of us are actually thinking about it in these terms. Energy, as you said, seems ubiquitous. Maybe it costs a little more. Ah, shit. It's a little bit more at the pumps, you know, and sometimes that stings worse than others, depending on your financial situation. And, you know, I have all the compassion for those who have to make already tough decisions based upon the price at the pump, which is happening and has been happening as gas prices rise and, you know, different energy costs rise. But, you know, fundamentally, as we reveal the truth and unveil our own blindness, then we start to see, oh, shit, we have a problem. There's a finite resource and we are going to hit it. It's a matter of when. And sure, there's some availability for certain innovations in different ways that we access coal or oil or gas or find, you know, ways to dig deeper in the ocean, all with its own environmental cost and risk of spills. And there's all kinds of different tangential issues related to that. But fundamentally, we're going to run out. Like, that's, that's the bottom line. So we either need to find a way to replace that energy with something else this kind of mythical unicorn of clean energy that comes from some other thing that we've been trying to work on and i think nuclear energy was that first big moment of like aha we found this we found this other source so we're either going to have to replace it or we're going to have to dramatically change our lifestyles or both that's right um, as far as the, the obviousness of it, I teach a class called Reality 101 uh, at the University of Minnesota, and I almost called it the things you always knew but didn't know you knew mm-hmm. because it is obvious that we need energy 
for everything. It is obvious that fossil fuels are finite and we're drawing them down, yet our culture treats them as interest, not as a bank account that we're depleting. Mm -hmm. So um, our wealth is a product of our productivity, which is everything in our economic system. We come up with an idea and we use energy and materials to create an invention. And then we denominate it in dollars. So you said we're running out. We've been running out since the first well was drilled in 1859. I don't think we're actually going to run out in yours or my lifetimes or even beyond. We're, we're running out of is the amount at the scale that will power economic growth at an affordable level to people. Um, this morning's newspaper showed 20 million Americans are overdue on their utility bills. Oil's only $90 a barrel here. In Europe today, because of the Russian situation, um, natural gas is 600, uh, um, the equivalent of $600 a barrel of oil today. Wow. And German politicians are saying you might not need to shower. Hand cloths are good inventions. You know, those sorts of triage sorts of situations. I think Germany is... And all of Europe are, are, is in a really difficult spot. They're going to have to make choices of what to turn on, what not. So I think this is a kind of a wake-up call to the world that we live in an energy and material reality, yet we have this cultural facsimile that it's a technology and money reality. Mm -hmm. um, so, But you're absolutely right. So the, here's how I see there's two scenarios that I envision. One is that we will continue to uh, develop new technology that boosts the productivity of our global economy. And we're able to continue to grow and maintain and service our existing financial claims. Granted, the, um, the environment will take the brunt of this as we continue to grow because of all the externalities, which are things that happen in nature that are not priced into our economic system, like climate change or species sure. loss, et cetera. Um, if so, energy and economic growth are 99% correlated. So if we're going to grow globally, a hundred units, we're going to need 99 plus or minus units of energy materials like copper and silicone and, uh, cobalt and lithium are a hundred percent correlated with growth. So this first scenario is we continue to find ways to maybe access some renewable energy or some new oil deposits or some new Ethereum-based blockchain technology that adds to our productivity as a global culture. And if we do that, every 30 years, we will double the amount of energy and materials used by humans. So a 10-year-old or a, a teenager today will have a quadrupling of the size and scale of our energy and resources in his or her lifetime. That's scenario one. Um, and that's what all the governments and corporations in the world are planning on, that we will continue to grow. Scenario two is we won't be able to continue to grow. We will have more costly inputs that won't be able to maintain our financial claims. And then we're going to have kind of a financial recalibration where we are growing our financial claims on reality, but our underlying reality is kind of slowly going like this. And that, that divergence is getting bigger. And so we're going to have uh, 
kind of a a moment, which I refer to as the great simplification, um, that humans are problem solvers and we've spent centuries solving our problems by adding more energy. But now in the future, we may not have more energy every year to solve our problems. So we're going to have to have different ways of arranging our culture. I mean, there's it, it's quite scary um, if you think about it, but it's also an opportunity because how much of this energy, how much of these 100 units of exosomatic energy are really making us happy and healthy? Well, if you look at the statistics, it's not happening. You know, we're not getting happier or mentally healthier as our productivity and output and energy consumption is going, which is actually good news for exactly. scenario two. Because for scenario two, this actually might save us from this increased technological or some kind of techno-feudalism from a macro standpoint or our internal technological dependence, which is removing us from actual reality, which is like the source the source point of, I think, a lot of our happiness and peace of mind and heart and body is getting back out into nature and in communion and connection with each other. So the good news is, is that this actually might be good for our hearts and minds and spirits. However, that decline will not go gently, most likely. Hopefully we could, smooth. if it goes this scenario, and I want to go back to the other scenario as well, but if it goes this scenario, it's not going to go gently. The established powers, the structures, the people who are really almost, you could say, addicted to this growth model and this this economic engine, it's going to be tough. And then there's going to be a lot of people who are displaced and deeply suffer, who are dependent on energy for warmth and can't access these other things. So it's a kind of really bumpy, crunchy, but ultimately potentially healthy pathway, I guess. That's why I wanted to come on your show because your audience um, is talking about community and heart and reality and uh, how to live a holistic life and reconnecting with others and with nature. And that's ultimately what it's all about. I mean, if you uh, correlate, like you said, our energy and our GDP have been growing like this, but the last 70 years, the percent of Americans that are very happy has not changed and actually declined just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So more energy and stuff is like this treadmill that we want to keep up with what our cultural scorecards are of success, which are a lot of bank accounts and uh, conspicuous consumption and bigger houses and speedboats and things like that. And it's like this compulsion to keep up with our neighbors, but it's really not making us happy or healthy. So mm -hmm. there is an addictive component to it. Um, I, I think, you know, if you think back to the top five or 10 best experiences of your life, anyone listening to this, how many of them were- Included psilocybin. <laughs> Four out of five. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and psilocybin does not require a lot of energy and no, complexity. A little to... bit of sunlight, a little bit of decomposed wood, and a little bit of fucking magic, potentially from the stars. But that's not proven. I've actually only done it once in Thailand a long time ago. So you got one out of your top five experiences <laughs> taken care of? It was not one of my top five. Oh, there was a like a miniature Jesus Christ running up my leg and I- How I've is that been, not a top experience? Uh, yeah. Baby I mean, Jesus? <laughs> Mini Jesus? It was a full-grown adult Jesus, but just in miniature. 
Um, and uh, incredible, <laughs> incredible. I have some friends who are prompting me to uh, get back on the horse. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you meet little miniature Jesus <laughs> in your first time, that's an invitation. Yeah. Did you talk to him about some stuff? What did you say? Did you? Have I was a just dialogue? kind of scared at the time, but. Um, I'll, He's the least scary of all <laughs> of all the astral beings you could encounter. Miniature Jesus is like, yeah, but he was a, running at me. Oh yeah, so, yeah. Well, that was a little aggressive, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, yeah, no. But, I, but I my hear point you. there is, you know, for me, with my dogs or walking in nature or being with my family on a trip, just fishing. I mean don't need a lot of exosomatic energy to live happy and meaningful moments. And I think a lot of us feel that intuitively and we're just caught in this cultural vortex of consumption and lack of meaning. And I think people are, are craving a, a less material existence if they have the community and the support and the well-being, which a lot of people don't have. Um, so yeah, that's what we're headed towards, how to build more community and real social interactions instead of financial markers of what we think are what we should be uh, aspiring to. And, you know, another one of the ways that we can access this deep well of, of erotic living, and you mentioned that you listened to my podcast with Gaffney, and this is obviously really expanding my mind to the understanding of how to live your life fully erotically. And, and one of the top experiences I've had this year, of course, many have been fit for service gatherings, people coming together and these amazing, you know, or even just time with a friend out, whether it's just smoking a cigar on the sunset or something like that, which, yeah, of course, there's some energy that re was required to roll the cigar and grow the tobacco. And there's always a little bit of energy being used, but it hasn't been the big, massive things you know i've also taken a big trip to greece i've done the they're all they're all great and they're all fun but it's been the quiet moments or recently this last week just taking an entire day to just make love to my wife slowly you know like patiently and yeah we, we had to eat some food you know but that was it and it was the best it was the best day and that day could have happened in in a hut that we somehow figured out how to build and keep the rain out and you know, so finding these ways back and I think having some of these options denied will teach us like, no, no, we have so much access to this beautiful erotic life. Firstly, you are a very rich man based on that story alone. Yeah. Secondly, making love to your wife or going for a walk in the woods or sitting by a natural setting and meditating, none of those things are included in GDP which is our cultural scorecard of what we're supposed to be measuring as our success. So one aspect uh, highlighted in the film, the great simplification you mentioned, is that humans currently, with our current media and marketing and, and cultural stories, we self-organize as small groups, as families, as small corp corporations, uh, as large multinationals, as nations, as a global economy in order to maximize our profits. And these profits are completely tethered to energy and materials, which is completely tethered to a fossil energy, which is depleting quite rapidly. And so metabolically as a species, 
we are functioning as an energy-hungry superorganism right now that is kind of out of control. And so we have to somehow change how we use energy and how we think about energy so that it contributes to like your experience with your wife. That didn't require energy. It wasn't measured in our economic system. So how can we have an economic system in the future that prioritizes or at least recognizes our well-being and the well-being of nature? Because right now, GDP, by definition, Aubrey, is a measure of how much stuff we burn on the planet. Mm. Every single thing that contributes to our GDP in the world started somewhere on earth with a small fire. And um, this system has a momentum, but I think in the next decade, this system is going to run out of road and we're going to have to have a new cultural story about all this. Mm. So those humans that can be pilots of living differently, not to save the environment per se on climate change, but because they recognize that using less energy makes them maybe healthier, more flexible, more mentally adept. Um, we're going to need those little pilots and beacons of humans living differently with community and social interaction. Um, and that's why I'm doing this work because yeah. I, I think as a culture, there's no chance that we're going to recognize this en masse and decide to conserve and leave the fossil carbon in the ground no way that's going to happen we don't have the we don't have the consciousness for it at this point we've been indoctrinated and entrained in a whole different way of thinking and then that's going to take a lot to unravel and it's and it's worthy to try to unravel it even while we have enough energy like this is also also worthy like let's let's go and address the consciousness part of this to teach people how to live a fully erotically expansive life, just utilizing connection with people and nature, et cetera. I think that's a worthy cause. And, and then I think the pressures of you know, the, the dwindling energetic reserves will just, hopefully, if we have already established these pathways, just drive more people into that way of thinking. So I recently gave a talk. Um, I had one of my students create uh, tarot cards, um, not real tarot cards, but they were images of these 80 concepts of ecological concepts of the story that I'm telling to you. And uh, a woman came up to me after I gave a talk recently, and she's like, that was one of the most amazing things I ever saw. She's like, did you know that only around 10% of humans could take on board what you just said? And I'm like, intellectually? She's like, no, 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 not intellectually. She's like, they only 10% of humans have a container emotionally and spiritually of where to put that information because it's, it's threatening to our identities and the stories that we tell about ourselves. And the first thought I had when she said that was, why am I spending so much time refining this story of energy, the environment, and human behavior when we should be growing that 10% to right. 15% to 20% to 40% on the change of consciousness and how do we do that? And Talk to micro Jesus. <laughs> well, if I get another chance, I'll ask him that. Um, but that's where your work comes in, right? Is and and Jamie's work. Uh, I mean, we need to have some cultural conversation about what is this all for. I mean, to use a, a fairy tale um, story, we kind of found Aladdin's lamp. 
Yeah. And we had three wishes and we've burned the first two. It's interesting that Aladdin's lamp was kind of like an oil lamp, right? Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like that's, there's so much that's mythopoetically woven in that's right in front of our eyes. Like this moment, like, oh, fuck, it was an oil lamp that was our genie that could grant all our wishes. Well, we've used the first two, and what are we going to do with our <laughs> remaining third of oil yeah. uh, and other resources? Do we want, I mean, we've basically just burned it for dopamine. Yeah, I love that. I love that line that, that you talked about. We're turning billions of barrels of ancient sunlight into microliters of dopamine, which is really a microcosm for our society. There's nothing lasting that we're building by using these gargantuan amounts of fossil sunlight that are depleting on human timescales very rapidly. How much are we leaving for people 100 years from now that could really benefit from how magical they are and what they could provide? Mm. Uh, so yeah, we are approaching a great simplification in my view, um, but we're also approaching an opportunity for humans. I mean, I, I would argue that we are the first generation of our species to be able to understand where we came from, the long trajectory, 300,000 years as Homo sapiens, what we're doing, what we need, uh, what really makes us tick. We're incredibly social creatures. And the, the community of some of the friends here in the room, and last night I, I had dinner with my best friend from high school. For three hours, we just talked about stories. Those are the things that we really care about. All this other stuff is this scaffolding that we've come to expect, but is not really necessary. Yeah. And so we're at a, a, a species level conversation moment. And where do we go from here and look at everything that's at stake? And so I, I think we need to, as tough and daunting as it is, these realities about species loss and climate change and poverty and injustice and war, we kind of, some of us need to own that and start having some pro-social, honest, deep conversation and doing of, of, of change. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me add one more thing. So the story that I'm telling you um, makes sense to the average person, I think. Who it doesn't make sense to is economists, uh, technological developers, and government officials, because they follow a different playbook. They follow a book that energy is just one of the many inputs into our economy, and if the price gets high enough, we'll find a replacement. And that technology can overcome, technology in the markets can overcome any problem that we come about, because it always has but it always has in an era of raising energy supplies. Um, so politicians can't touch what I just said to you. Could you imagine a high level politician saying, we're probably gonna have less energy materials in the future. Our, the size of our economies are likely to, gonna decline, vote for me, and um, we're gonna you know, roll up our sleeves and figure out a way through that. It, well, it's an, it's an impossibility in the current yeah. bipartisan system that we have because then the other side would go like oh look at this person spouting the truth that people don't want to hear let me tell them some pollyannish fantasy yeah and they'll vote for me instead pollyannish fantasies uh, are more viral viral and acceptable to the general population and that's the that's the thing it's we were locked in a system where nobody is actually 
compelled to tell the truth. They're actually just compelled to barely win at all cost, no matter what, no matter what lies or whatever manipulations they, you know, and it's gotten seemingly gotten worse and worse in my lifetime as I've watched this, you know, and it's like these short-term election cycles are really driving this crazy world we're, we're in right now where nobody's actually coming together to address these issues. I know you know Daniel Schmachtenberger. This mm -hmm. is why he and I joined forces uh, a couple years ago because I think he points out the perils of AI and algorithms and um, technology that is leading us towards more and more polarized decisions and actions. And if we don't fix that, we can't have this conversation. I guess we can have it right now on your podcast and you have a lot of viewers, but as a culture, Technology is leading us further away from authentic, uh, real discussions about our situation and into, you know, identity wars and, and things like that. So yeah. I think we, we, all, we need to fix that piece in order to have this, this conversation take root. Yeah. So let's go back to the so one thing we haven't addressed. So I want to ultimately, just to give the listeners, I want to ultimately get to, okay, real brass tacks. What do we do actually here going forward, each of us as individuals? So we'll get there. But I want to explore this other, this other track in which this is the track that you mentioned that economists and different technologists have in their own mind that, oh, we're running out of energy? No worries. We'll find new ways to create energy. So one of the things that um, you know, I haven't heard you talk about, and I'm sure you have, I just probably haven't come across it, is nuclear energy. So nuclear energy to me seems like one of the most dangerous things that we have going on right now because we live in a cataclysmic planet. There's all kinds of floods and things that happen regularly. And as we saw with Fukushima, one small little tsunami then put all of this radiation into the ocean. And I don't think we've, we'll ever know and be able to calculate how much damage that did just in that one scenario, right? And so having all of these nuclear plants is in and of itself an existential risk, depending upon the natural cataclysms of some caldera exploding over, you know, beneath a plant or some other flood situation. It seems perilous to begin with, but it is a source of energy that is providing a lot a lot of energy. So so I'd like to just talk about nuclear energy and then talk about what else could possibly continue to provide energy in this endless kind of variety. It's an excellent question. Uh, for some reason, culturally, I get that question more than any other. There seems to be this zeitgeist around nuclear, with, which I think is really interesting. Um, so here's why nuclear isn't an answer to oil depletion per se. Um, first of all, only 20% of our energy consumption globally is electric. The rest is liquid fuels, heat, transportation, things like that. So nuclear creates electricity. So there's a mismatch there on being able to power the whole system. Secondly, nuclear is expensive, um, full, full cost. Thirdly, um, nuclear is incredibly uh, complicated to build. So even if we were to massively scale nuclear in the world today, uh, it would be 10, 15 years before things would be built out in, in, a, in a productive way. It's also 
dependent on uranium and potentially thorium. Um, there's probably only 70, 80 years worth of high concentrated uranium. Um, yes, there's uranium in seawater, lots of it, but it's getting back to the net energy question. To get the amount of uranium in seawater, we have to use as much or more energy than we would get out of it, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think the damage to the oceans, et cetera, is – I think that's probably overestimated. Mm -hmm. I think nuclear advocates are correct that the current risks of radiation, et cetera, are probably over-exaggerated. Mm -hmm. But here's the risk that they don't talk about. Look at you with some good news. Look at that. Yeah, once in a while, Look Aubrey, at that. Once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Just the bearer um, of good news. Yeah, but I'm going to follow it up with this. <laughs> um, okay. So um, nuclear proponents implicitly assume a perpetual civilization that lasts forever because the second that we have a civilization that no longer functions for whatever reason, for an asteroid, for a Carrington event, solar pulse, or you said a geological thing, or a, a war, or just a financial collapse, or anything that results in non-continuity of our civilization, there's 450 nuclear plants around the world that will run out of diesel fuel as backup that will result in Chernobyl's. So that's something that we assume will always have this culture that has complexity and wealth in order to solve these pr problems. So many – I mean I, I'm not anti-capitalist. I, I think my lens is more of a superorganism, human, anthropological lens. But a lot of the costs of capitalism are backloaded. Mm-hmm. You know, the endocrine disrupting chemicals and the ocean acidification. The nuclear potential risk in the future is one of those costs that we don't see every year or every decade. It would only come at the end, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's back to the back to what I expected. Uh, <laughs> but it seems like um, because it's not also it's also not easy to shut these things down. You know, there are procedures to shut them down, but. It seems a little bit like it's just mitigating the damage when you shut them down. There's not like a really good way to shut down an active nuclear power plant from what I understand. Well, I, I imagine you didn't see this news this morning, but you mentioned Fukushima and how Japan shut down all their nuclear plants because of that. Well, they're restarting them as of this morning because uh -huh. they recognize how important nuclear is to their energy futures. Japan, the United States right now, we produce 85% of our own energy internally. Japan, virtually zero. Mm. So some of these countries, and this is the problem with Europe, they became uber dependent on Russian natural gas. And now they're- Whoops on the verge of economic suicide because they built a lot of solar and wind and solar and wind are viable and mature. And I am in favor of them for a, a human future, but not the human future that is a hundred to one exosomatic footprint, not consuming at the levels we are today. So in my opinion, Aubrey, renewable energy is the right answer to the wrong question. We should be combining our low entropy depleting fossil magic with our good technology like solar panels, our mm -hmm. wonderful technology with a smaller scale. How do we get our energy services? How do we get the best things? Like the first few kilowatt hours of energy can power a laptop or power a cell phone, but we use hundreds of times more than that. 
Like I had someone come to my house and gave me an estimate to put solar panels. And I said, well, I just want this amount to power these things. They're like, no, 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 you need to build out, have a higher amount. So in case you get some new appliances and, and things, like they want me to buy more than I need. So right now in America, the average American has 50 devices in their house plugged in all the time, even when they're not using them. And that requires, that, that uses like 25% of our energy right there, of our electricity. So when you're sleeping, you have all these Xboxes and refrigerators and washer dryers and chargers that are plugged on because we take it for granted. Mm. We, we've just, we, we're so blind to the power and amazing benefits that we get from this stuff that's basically too cheap to meter. So yeah, I think nuclear can play a role, but it's not a, a savior. I think the savior is going to be a new cultural direction, and I think that's a, a David and Goliath sort of challenge. Um, but we're going to have to change our relationship with energy as opposed to saying, how can we replace the current energy we have so we can have more and continue the current trajectory we're on? Right. I'm not finished with that. Okay. With that. I'm not finished with that model yet, though, quite yet, because I want to explore this thoroughly and then that will give, I think, the liberty to go into this second model. So, all right, let's talk about solar. What is the net energy? Because uh, it costs a lot to build a solar. You know, it costs a lot to build a solar panel, I'm sure. It requires a lot of energy. When does that energy start to actually become net positive? Like how many years of solar from one panel does it, does it take to make up for the energy it costs to build the solar panel? So if people Googled the question that you just asked, they would get 15 different answers because it depends on the boundaries of analysis on the question. So um, there's something called the levelized cost of energy, which uh, is a very popular uh, statistic um, by renewable promoters that show that solar is the cheapest form of energy in the world, cheaper than coal, cheaper than natural gas. Um, for those who just kind of intuitively are paying attention, they know that that probably isn't true because if that were true, why would Germany have $600 a barrel oil prices today because they're lacking natural gas? So the answer to your question is um, if you added solar panels to Austin, Texas's electrical grid today, they would be quite cheap. But what that doesn't include is all the um, – the, the transformers and the electrical infrastructure and the batteries or the backup when it's raining or dark or mm -hmm. uh, not windy or winter or things like that. So we have to look at the price of the whole system. And on that, solar and wind are more costly than natural gas. Natural gas is the gold standard of energy because when it's dark or no wind or no sun, we flick a switch and those natural gas combined cycle plants start burning right away and they provide on-demand energy. So solar and wind are intermittent and they, when you get a lot of sun, they're great. And so the, the renewable energy proponents want to overbuild, like let's build more than we need. And that way we can have excess energy to maybe create uh, petrochemicals, store, it, Tesla store, battery, it, store yeah. it. There's all those possible trajectories, but they all are battling with this energy hungry superorganism that just marches on and grows and grows and grows and our financial claims on it, which we didn't really get into that story, but um, you know, we're creating debt 
as a global culture, we're doubling our debt every eight and a half years as a global society. And we're doubling our GDP every 25 years. GDP is the income stream needed to pay back that debt. And this is before energy um, production starts to decline. So when you talk about solar, it's how does it fit into this macro system and my view is that solar and wind right now, first of all, they're not renewable energy because they require incredibly complex machinery and metals and rare earth components and PhDs in polysilicone manufacturing. Solar and wind are rebuildable technology that accesses the renewable energy of the sun. Mm -hmm. But they need to be rebuilt every 25 years or even less and we need to do it again. And we don't recycle that stuff too well. Um, so the answer to your question is they are quite energy positive, not as much as fossil carbon is, but maybe in uh, three or four years on average, a full system that pays mm -hmm. the energy back. So relative to human generations of the past, this is amazing technology. Yeah can do huge things. So still a good idea as this still, is jump, jumping ahead to, to the, to where we're going. This is one of the things that is still a good idea. And even more, and I don't know how this fits in our economic system, but we should incentivize someone to invent a hundred year solar panel. Yeah. That wouldn't sell today because the company would go out of business because no one would need replacements for it. But something like that, we should have people working on that would pay over generations. Mm -hmm. um, lots of things are good ideas, Aubrey, but I think you have to always look at the overall context of the system. You could argue, Nate, what if we got a too cheap to meter new technology like nuclear fusion or something that gave us energy for free? Wouldn't that solve our problems? Because on the surface it would, right? Because then this oil depletion I was mentioning wouldn't be an issue. Uh, I don't think we're mature enough as a culture to have too cheap to meter electricity. Could you imagine all of the impact on the global natural world if humans had access to unlimited energy? I thought about this last night. I was, you know, contemplative after, you know, doing a deep dive into your work and I thought about this and uh, I'm not convinced that um, extraterrestrials are actually physical beings. You know, I've had plenty of different experiences where I've encountered what seems like extraterrestrial entities, but I couldn't hit them with the stick. They seem to be more of the mind than of the physical reality. So I, and I have no fucking idea, right, about whether that's, uh, that's a reality or not. But I pondered hypothetically, okay, let's say that they are part of the physical reality and not just something that is piercing our dimensional reality enough that we can see them either because we're in an altered state or it's creating some opening in our consciousness much like micro jesus you couldn't grab him and hold him and feel him in your hand he was there but nonetheless it wasn't really there from uh, from that perspective but let's just assume that there are extraterrestrial you know influences that have physical ships and things like that that you could you know pound on like this and it would make a sound and they do have access to energy that whether it is nuclear fusion or whether it's harnessing gravitational energy forces or some other thing that's latent that we're unaware of if they dropped that technology onto earth yes it would solve some of the problems that we'd have we'd obviously have to convert all of our 
carbon burning, you know, machinery into electrical machinery, which is 80% would have to become a hundred, all that 80% would have to become a hundred percent. We could figure that out. We'd have enough energy to ultimately figure it out. Be a big undertaking. A lot of people would go to work. It'd be okay. However, that's not the fucking problem. The problem is, is our consciousness is not anywhere close to ready to have that much energy available. And what we would do from you know, in war and in conquest, and we're still not mature enough to actually be able to to hold that. And so, if there, if that was even a possibility, I mean, we're just not ready for it. Which again goes back to okay, we got to prepare our consciousness, even if this is a very small but not zero chance. We got to prepare our consciousness to be able to receive this and have structures and political structures and and kind of dissolve these tribal identities that say. On this side of the line, you're our enemy, but on this side, you're our friend. We got to fucking change all of that in order to even be able to receive a technology of that much magic. Totally agree. Um, I would guess Daniel Schmachtenberger was on your show. They talk about uh, Marvin Harris's um, cultural materialism, which shows that all human cultures have three distinct layers. One is the superstructure, which is our ideas, our beliefs, your words, our consciousness. Second is the social structure, which is our rules and our economic institutions. And the third is our infrastructure, which is the flows of energy and materials and the relationship to the environment. And we need all three of those things to change. And if we, I'm talking about the infrastructure because I think a lot of people don't talk about it. But unless we fix ultimately all three, starting with our values, our well-being, our consciousness, then better technology, even gifted to us by hypothetical aliens, isn't going to solve the problem. Um, So on all these things, when people talk to me, well, what do we do? Um, I think there's two separate parallel questions. One is what sort of a sustainable, desirable human system would be viable with our current technology and with our depleted ecosystems, but still magical, abundant nature and our remaining fossil hydrocarbon bank account? What what would be feasible? And then the second question is how do we get from here to there? And that's a much more difficult question. Mm-hmm. And I think we need people um, uh, working on both. But you're right. There's there's a technical, biophysical aspect to this, and there's a spiritual, social, consciousness aspect to it as well. Yeah. And so I want to get into a little bit of the, and, and I thought this was also a brilliant aspect of your work, how this economic machine is really an organism in and of itself, right? Like I had um, Fabio Vigi on the podcast, and he made a very compelling case that, you know, so BlackRock came and they wrote a report in 2019 and they sent the report off to the government. They're now working with the government. Trump kind of brought them in and as as advisors, they, they're like the world's largest private financial institution, right? For people who don't know. And if people listen to my podcast with Fabio, it's just going to be a quick summary. But fundamentally, they said, we're in a really shitty situation economically and there's only one solution. And that means we have to give, and this is all public information. They sent this letter and published it. They said, we have to go direct and give consumers access to enormous amounts of capital. We just basically have to hand people a bunch of money 
then we have to restrict the flow of that money to prevent hyperinflation through the middle class. And this is kind of the, the scenario we're in. Otherwise, we're fucked. Like all of these different economic, financial, you know, house of cards would start to crumble. Well, miraculously, and, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not one to delve into any conspiracies or whatever, but miraculously, the conditions for exactly that came about in 2020, in which we handed out trillions to individual consumers. And then the middle class, because of lockdowns, was actually frozen out. So money didn't circulate in the same way. And it was absorbed by the super corporations, the mega corporations, which were still functioning, like the Amazons of the world. All of these multi-billion dollar corporations all absorbed the capital, like giant battery systems that could absorb it, preventing that inflation from hitting until now, where now everything's back open and the money's circulating. And then now we're starting to feel the inflation. But it's making a case, and I think you make a similar case, totally different vector, but a similar case that perhaps also what we're blind to is who's really running the show. And what's really running the show is our financial economic system itself. Forget about all of, oh, there's a bad group of people and these, maybe, maybe not, you know, maybe it's just an economic system like, let's like an organism and like every organism, its priority is to survive and grow. That's what every organism wants to do. What do you want to do? Survive, expand, reproduce, grow. And maybe that's actually what's really driving everything else. And we're pointing at this thing and that thing, but it's actually uh, the organism of our economic system itself that's driving so much of our action from our wars to our politics to everything that we think is something else. We're just blind to who's really running the show. You're absolutely right. We have outsourced our decisions and planning to the financial system. This wasn't always the case. A hundred years ago, there were rules on corporations and such, but now each corporation has become its, its own miniature superorganism where they have to pursue profits. And if you have some ecologically aware CEO that wants to measure things differently, he or she will get booted out by the shareholders, by someone who will maximize profits. And those profits are completely tethered to fossil energy and expansion of natural resource consumption. So in many ways, what's happening is nobody's fault, but we're all complicit. And there's this built-in drive for economic growth. And personally, I think we're approaching uh, an inflection point where we have to choose growth or life. Uh, on the planet and the the ecological consequences of what is happening. I, I don't know if you've had episodes um, with people talking about it, but I'll just briefly give you a one-minute summary and then come back to your question because mm -hmm. I, I feel strongly about it. Um, since I've been on this planet, we've lost 70% of the populations of animals, insects, and birds and fish. We have- That's sad. Like, like if you let yourself feel it, you it's know, like horribly sad. Dude. It's really sad. It motivates my work because on the downside of what's coming, these other species have no voice. Yeah. We don't have dolphins or giraffes or bumblebees on corporate boards. And so how do we plan and respond to what's coming 
while including the natural world in our decisions is something that I think about all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think to just use less, I mean, I'm an environmentalist, but I think a lot of the environmental stories out there are energy and systems blind because we can't just let's leave all the fossil fuels in the ground and continue our economic system is a re really naive assertion. Um, so how are we going to um, protect the well-being of the humans alive today, the humans alive in the future, and the other nieces, nephews, cousins in nature that we share this blue-green planet with is a central question here. You know, I was – I want to bring this up because I'm re-watching Game of Thrones with my wife who had never seen it. And she's obviously super hooked. Uh, it's just a truly amazing show, actually, going back and watching it. And it was one of the shows that I got really into when it was when it was when it was going. And I read all the books because I couldn't wait after I saw the first season. I was really into it. And there's a there's a storyline of the Iron Bank of Bravos, which is lending money to everybody. And you can see that they have a small hand that they're playing in a lot of the different turmoil and the conflict between the states and how they really have a, a power source. And of course, they have their own army. But I think they maybe missed an opportunity to tell a cultural story in Game of Thrones in which actually it could have played as it really is in life, the Iron Bank, the entire interconnected web of Federal Reserve is really driving things. And yes, there's individual corporations, there's our Lannisters, and there's our whatever, the Dorn and all of the other houses. And if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, apologize. But nonetheless, like there's a centralized banking system, a financial system that's interlinked with all of these individual corporate agents. But it's the bank itself. It's the system itself, which probably even before corporations reach this place and monopolies have started to form. But really the economic engine itself from this meta perspective has probably been driving things for a fucking long time. Like follow the money and you'll understand world history. So I have watched Game of Thrones and I have read the books and winter is coming, Aubrey. <laughs> um, so, uh, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Is, is finance is driving and steering our cultural car. But the car is made out of materials and powered by energy. But finance, we have created monetary markers to represent our status and success. And when money, I'll just briefly say this in one minute, money in our economic textbooks is the way that money is created is wrong. Economic textbooks treat that banks lend existing capital to people that are creditworthy. And the reality is, is that banks create money when a loan is made. So when you get a, a loan for your business, they put a million dollars into your bank. And at the same time, there's an IOU on the bank balance sheet. You have a million cash. You owe the bank a million. The financial system is stable. But when that million comes into your bank at that moment, the same amount of copper and oil and trees and dolphins are on the earth. And so what we're doing is our financial system has a compulsion to grow because when you get that loan, they didn't create the interest on the loan. So we have to grow in order to pay back prior financial commitments. And you're right, the, there is this embedded 
financial overlord of, and this is what I call the super organism. I know a lot of uh, billionaires and politicians, both U.S. and and internationally. They're not in control of this. We really have outsourced our decision making to the market and the financial system, which has taken on a momentum and a life of its own. And um, there is no easy answer. I mean, the Federal Reserve is meeting later this week, uh, Jackson Hole, a big meeting. People are talking about it. So they can do two things. They can raise interest rates, which crushes demand, costs more money for people to get a mortgage, uh, reduces consumption, reduces inflation, but it's going to cause a recession or worse. Or they could give money away, like you said, in 2020 and 2009, central banks of the world did the perfect thing to turn the economy around, but not for the environment, not for our um, low low entropy, high quality remaining resources, not for the natural world, not for future generations. So we are a can-kicking species, and I would argue – well, going way back, Thomas Malthus said that um, our exponential demand for food would outstrip our linear demand to create it. He was wrong because he didn't know about fossil fuels that we would soon develop. Paul Ehrlich wrote a book in the 1960s called The Population Bomb predicting some of these things would happen. He was wrong because we developed um, globalization where we outsourced to the areas of cheaper production and we went to debt in a large way where when we – Debt is like, so money, Aubrey, is a claim on energy. The money you have in your wallet, the money you have in your bank account, and anyone listening to this, when they spend that money, it will be on something that requires energy. Mm -hmm. So um, debt is a claim on future energy. And so if we can't afford the things that we have today, we can go into more and more debt. And what we do then is we consume things today that we would have been able to consume 20 years ago. But when we get to that 20 years point, those resources will either be not available or much more costly. So then in 2009, we had this financial crisis and the global central banks took over the role of commercial banks and have kind of been managing the system since then. And the United States is by far not in the worst shape. Um, Japan and, and Europe have this problem where they have to bail out people. Like in the UK and Germany right now, they're putting a cap on how much families can pay for energy because their energy prices are going through the roof, like five to 10 times higher than they are in America. If the government says you only pay $10,000 a year on energy, we're going to pay the rest Eventually, the government, where does the government get money? So we're in this snowballing situation of lots of demands on energy and money, and the governments are coming in to help us manage that. And if you think about human behavior, I don't think we will radically change to the level needed before there's a crisis. So my work is trying to inform leaders and politicians on the one hand to have a plan when these things happen, but also citizens and people to raise their consciousness, develop social networks, friends, relationships, community, kind of looking around your house and all the things that we use energy for 
and maybe having a conversation with yourself and your loved ones, you know, is this, do we need all this stuff? And the more of those people that we have as examples, as pilots, I think the better the future choices will be. But getting back to your question, yes, I think finance is steering our entire thing right now. And we like to, as humans, we kind of like to blame outgroups for our problems. Like it's the billionaire's fault. Well, billionaires have been successful given the rules of the game right now, but they're not they're not driving this. They're responding to the cultural signals that that we give. It's it also seems like war has now come on to the global landscape in a way that it hasn't with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This kind of it's been a while since we've seen like a big superpower say like, "Oh, you over there, we have the muscle, we can just go take it. And this was the way that it's always been in history. If we could take it, we did. But we're like, no, 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 we're evolved past that. We don't do that shit anymore. And Russia's like, well, we do. So here we go. And we're like, fuck, now what, are we, now what do we do? And it seems like this is one of the things that we have to be kind of aware of, that as we get in this dwindling amount of energy, we're going to start looking around and just all it takes is a convenient enough excuse to say like, yeah, those guys over there. Yeah. Fuck them. You know, we're going to go, we have good call. We have good justification. Don't worry, everybody. You can be morally exculpable from our actions here because we can scapegoat these people. We're just going to take their shit and kill them. And dude, I completely agree with you. And I wasn't even going to bring that up. And to be honest with you, um, or to be blunt with you, talking about war and Russia and nuclear war and violence like that is kind of the equivalent of farting in a room because you don't, we don't want to talk about this stuff. It's not pleasant because there are no answers. But I would argue that we didn't evolve past that, that energy surplus the world over, rising tides lifted all boats so we could have this international alliance of cooperation because economic growth applied to all countries. And even the global South still has the narrative that they can aspire to be like the United States or France or something like that. I think what happened in Russia is um, a shot across the bow metaphorically on the two competing worldviews. One is finance and technology and the other is energy and materials. And energy and materials, Russia is a powerhouse. They have the most energy and material in their vast land mass of any other nation. And so what's happening now is we're changing into a multipolar world order where the United States not only has been the world leader in terms of economic growth and energy, et cetera, but we had the world's leading reserve currency, the US dollar. So since the 1970s, all of the oil in the world that's traded has to be traded in US dollars. But now what's happening is Saudi Arabia is um, aligning with Russia. Saudi Arabia is where we get the majority of our oil other than our own. Um, there are all these new uh, international alliances that are happening because of this Russia-Ukraine situation. And personally, I would not be that surprised if Germany and, and Europe at some point says, this is economic suicide. We have to buddy up with Russia and de-emphasize our relationship with the United States and NATO because we need the energy now. Mm. So this geopolitical arrangement where the G20 and the G7 get together and they talk about our future, this conversation we're having 
cannot happen at those levels. Could you imagine at a meeting with the G20, you know what, we're running into limits to growth and oil probably peaked in 2018 and we have great renewable and other technology, but it's not going to continue economic growth for much longer. What do we do here? Let's just hold hands and kumbaya our way through it. I, I don't know the answer, Aubrey. It's something yeah. that worries me. I think a lot of people, and I, and I don't know the truth of this or not, but a lot of people would say the reason we got involved with Iraq, obviously we it seemingly conjured this idea of weapons of mass destruction, right? Like they, we never found them at the very least. Whether we believed that they actually existed or not, who knows? That's some closed room situation where we don't actually know what, what, what was actually the decision made. But it seemed like there was a move being made to secure our access to Iraqi oil and energy, right? And so it's like, we're like, oh, I can't believe Russia did that. But maybe we've been doing the same shit. So my very first podcast was with my friend Richard Gephardt, who was House Majority Leader during that time. And on my podcast, he said that he was called into a room with the president and was given evidence that we had weapons of mass destruction, and it turned out to be false. And he said he has lived every day of his life regretting that, knowing the implications of that. Set that aside for a moment. If you draw a triangle around Baghdad within 600 miles of that, there's all kinds of military bases in the world, I mean, the U.S. has in that, in that region, 60% of the world's remaining oil and gas is within that 600-mile triangle. So it's obvious that if that situation had been Tasmania or uh, Botswana, we would not have had the same reaction. Mm -hmm. It is the, the, the access to power. Many, many historical wars have been fought over oil and energy. Um, so energy is the master resource, and it will be again in years of my lifetimes. So this is why these conversations, I feel both compelled to share this information with more people, and at the same time, I feel a guilt and a, an apology because a lot, this is a lot for someone to take on board, right. especially given the divergence between this conversation and our cultural stories about our future and, you know, everyone can live the American dream. You just have to work hard enough. And, and, and just, this is, this is our reality though. You know, you, you could, so if, if I'm just thinking about it right now, you know, we've laid a lot of groundwork for a country like Venezuela, right? Like, and it would seem to me that with the groundwork that's been laid, we would just have to either actual or conjure some actual threat from Venezuela. And I don't know about Venezuela's energy reserves, but I think they have some. Uh, I'm not, this is not, this is not my area of expertise, but just hypothetically, whether it's Venezuela or some other place, Syria or something like that, you lay the groundwork and then you, you know, exaggerate or create some hyperbolic situation why it's necessary for our own safety to go in there. And basically it's, colon it's colonization to a certain degree with just different excuses and different rationale. But we go in there, say, oh, look, Venezuela, you know, fuck, it's fucked up. We got to go fix it. But meanwhile, we're just actually going to access their energy resources and set up our installations and corporations to basically suck more energy out of that place. It's energy colonialism. Yeah, um, I hear you. Uh, Venezuela has, by some metrics, the largest remaining oil reserves in the world, but it's the Orinoco tar sands, which is pretty much like 
bitumen sand that wasn't developed enough to actually turn into oil, kind of like the tar sands in Alberta. So it is energy, but it takes a huge amount of energy to process. Right. Now, the good thing about Venezuela, good thing, uh, is that it's super heavy oil. And when you refine it and pair it with the oil in the United States, which is very light oil now, um, the combination is a good product. So we probably are interested in Venezuelan oil resources. But the other challenge with, with uh, tar sands, just as an aside, they require huge amounts of natural gas to heat and process and turn into a usable product. So it's not like taking over that country is some you know, win-win. Uh, of course they're, not. They're, they're it's fucking costs. killing people for, well, there's, for, there's for, that. for energy, yeah. But but nonetheless, like you see how there's these mechanisms that if we're not if we're aware of them, then we can start to like then we can start to understand. But if we just follow the narrative of whatever that narrative comes, like the weapons of mass destruction, like the friend that you mentioned was like fuck, like this was the information we got, and based on that information, we made we voted and we gave support to these actions. But now with this kind of deeper understanding of like, all right, well, let's be mindful here. Let's be aware of these heavy tar sands that might be useful here. And, and I'm not saying that there isn't problems with what's going on in Venezuelan government. I'm not trying to excuse all that and say it's all bullshit or also, or be a Saddam Hussein apologist and say that he was a fucking great guy because it's clearly not. Like nobody's arguing that. But nonetheless, like the deeper, like the hidden layer of what's actually happening is I think what, you know, you're doing a great job trying to expose. And hopefully what we're trying to do here is just kind of open people's eyes to the mechanisms that are under the surface, not the little shiny objects like a stage musician is like, look over here. And meanwhile, they've planted their fucking playing card underneath your watch somehow. And I've, and I've watched David Blaine do this and it's fucking unbelievable. But, but like... That's just on a personal level, but that's kind of what the media is able to do is like, look over here, everybody. And meanwhile, the whole engine is planting, you know, planting their machinery right on the ground. And it's hard to look in the mirror and understand this larger context of what supports our lifestyles. And I, I'm not one who blames. Um, I'm just trying to tell a story. There's a famous Einstein quote, um, which I only heard recently. Einstein said, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes understanding the problem and five minutes solving it. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do is understand human behavior, who we are as evolved social biological beings. We care about status. We compare ourselves to others. We are fanatical in our beliefs that support our identity. We care about the present more than the long term. We get distracted by the shiny, supernormal stimuli on our phones. We are incredibly social and cultural evolution can happen at lightning speed versus biological evolution. How that fits with energy, material, monetary technology story and how that all fits in our ecological environmental circumstances. So I think if we do understand how that big picture fits together, yes. It's freaking daunting. Mm -hmm. um, but keep in mind, we use 100 times more energy as a culture, the United States, than our bodies need. So if that went down to 70 times or 50 times, 50 times would bring us to Spain, by the way, or most of Europe. 
They use 50 times more than their bodies need. And they, Spain has a better healthcare system than ours and their culture and siestas. I love Spain. Mm. Then there are other countries like Sri Lanka or Madagascar or Syria or Ukraine that have already hit this um, point. Um, so I, I don't know the answers, but I think more people need to join this conversation. And I agree with you that some people are going to, once they understand this, they're going to just, their initial reaction is to protect their identity and everything that they've gotten to up until their point, which means there will be a rationalization to take other people's energy and resources in other countries, et cetera. Yeah. I, I think there is that, that risk. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is shifting consciousness, getting to a state of shared principles and values, a shared ethos, a shared understanding, uh, this kind of cooperative mentality, which is really addressing the m biggest upstream issue, which is consciousness. And I think that's, we can do that through talking, through sharing, through learning, through fucking sharing this podcast and other conversations you've had in your video, The Great Simplification, and so many other things to just change awareness. So this is getting into the actionable things that we can do at this point. And, you know, also look deeper inside and try to understand what actually makes us happy, you know, and what, what the great joys of our, our own life really are and what we really need. So that if we do have to give up a lot of these things, it's like, oh, okay, you know, no worries. I've been ready for this. I know, I know how I personally am going to be able to manage this. But there's also then how do we individually prepare for the potential disruption that could happen and then the potential societal kind of breakdown. And this is, I think, what a lot of people are worried about. And there's a million different reasons that people are worried about this, that there's going to be some massive societal breakdown. And so lots of people that I know are just, and I'm, and I'm participating in some degree, but without the kind of... Uh, fear and, and kind of intensity that other people are doing it. Like we have a beautiful farm and we have some we have bees on the farm and chickens on the farm and turkeys and we have donkeys and we got some, you know, deer and we have like a whole ecosystem, a food forest that we're growing all in this beautiful permaculture spiral. And it's like, yeah, it's just fucking awesome. And I love going out there and just spending time, like immersing myself in nature. We have ponds that are stocked with fish and, it's lovely and we're putting in like, re, you know, regenerative energy and I'm really enjoying this, but, and a lot of, but I think there's also, and I'm getting support and a lot of people actually supporting it are supporting it, not because, man, this is beautiful. It's like recreating Eden. You know, it's actually a nonprofit that I'm forming called Gardeners of Eden. We're like creating like a new Edenic state out on this where we're like really connected back to the natural order of things where we're getting honey from our bees, we're getting meat from our animals, we're taking care of them. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I think that's a good part of the process. But the other part of the process is, all right, how much ammo do we got? How many, how much guns do we got? Because when we have this little thing, we're, you know, I'm using we in the collective sense in the, in the zeitgeist of a, of a group. It's like, well, people are going to come take it. And the problem that I have with this whole line of thinking is, our neighbors are fucking hungry. We have food and honey and bees. What are we going to do? Are they going to be outside the door with their kids? And we're going to be like, fuck you with our guns? No, no, I'm not. I'm going to give them all the fucking food I have. Like, I love people too much. This doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. Like, fundamentally, it doesn't work. This whole idea of, like, being in a bunker and 
somebody's fucking starving and I got food? Like what? Like really? What are we gonna do? Not like let them starve? Watch them on our fucking surveillance camera, slowly dying? Like no. Well, that's why I wanted to come and talk to you because I feel the exact same way. Um, knowing what I know, I I could be having that mentality. So let me say a couple things. First of all, I, I completely agree with you. Secondly, the world is a probability distribution. We don't know what's going to happen. The scenario that you just articulated is a possibility. It's probably not a probability, but it's under the realm of, of what's possible. Um, humans historically are a, we have a competitive drive and a cooperative drive. And this is an evolutionary carryover that those cooperative tribes in our distant past periodically would outcompete a tribe that had selfish individuals. And so in our genome, we have both selfishness and cooperative group attributes. Our culture highlights the self-interested individual and actually promotes it. And this is also a product of our energy surplus where everyone could have their own little castle and import stuff from those brown trucks that show up overnight and bring us little goodies. We don't need humans anymore because we're so rich as a culture. We're going to need humans again. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about these futures, to get the facts across, you kind of have to leave with fear not purposely because – but these things are scary with yeah, nuclear sure. war and financial breakdown and, and guns and things like that. But I think about pro-social preppers and uh, peaceful preppers and – you know, I think these individual lone wolves that have bunkers with uh, guns and cans of good for 10 years and whatever, there's an aspect of that that if you break your leg or if you have some problem, you're going to need a community. You're going to need a doctor. What we need to do right now, more urgent than anything, more urgent than renewable energy, is build social networks where we live with people that you might not normally agree with. It, this isn't about left or right or center or theology or atheism or anything like that. Most people where you live, where I live, care about the same things. We care about healthy soils and food and good education for our children and good safe neighborhoods where people can convene. We get distracted by the social media algorithms and the polarization that people are directing us to what we think we should care about. But deep down, we care about the same things. And uh, I, I agree with you. I don't, I, I don't think what we face is a problem that has a solution. I think we face a predicament that has a million different responses. Mm -hmm. And doing what you're doing because you have means, because you have connections and uh, a social network is critically important, and but also enabling people around you to um, participate and being aware that we're going to go through this together and not as individuals um, is really important. We live in a country where there are more guns than people. I mean, it's it's a really kind of scary thing. Um, I don't know how to navigate that other than building human relationships now, mm -hmm. vertically and horizontally as best you can. Having said that, 
I'm flying to Austin to do a podcast with someone I just met and who I like and philosophically and I'm aligned with, I don't have this conversation, the one that you and I are having with my neighbors because right. I'm afraid they might think I'm too weird. My neighbors like me, but they just know me as that guy that bikes and has chickens and that I teach college. They don't know this. Yeah. Um, and as an aside, you said you had chickens. Um, my relationship with chickens has really blossomed in the last couple <laughs> of years. I know that sounds weird, but I have 17 chickens and I've gotten to know them almost as individuals. There's two of them that I like pet at night when they're on their roost mm -hmm. and they, the other ones won't let me do it, but these will. And they're dinosaurs, really. They're totally. a, a carryover from dinosaurs. But what we have, we have emus, and those fuckers are truly dinosaurs. You look at their <laughs> legs and you're like, oh, wow. If yeah. you were bigger, you would eat my head. Yeah, yeah. But chickens are such amazing energy concentrating devices. They go out and they eat little bugs from hundreds of yards away and they come back and lay an egg for you. Oh, well, for them, but we take them. Mm. Um, and it's one of those dichotomies of our current existence that I love my chickens. And last night at the Habana house thing, I had a spicy Cuban chicken sandwich that was delicious. Mm. And I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I, this was a delicious sandwich on the menu that I liked. And I didn't make the mental connection that it was from the same species, the same creature that I pet every night. I mean, it wasn't my chicken. It was someone else's chicken, probably in a factory farm. How many of those dichotomies exist in our current culture where we feel one thing and we act a different way? And I'm just as guilty as the next person. These are the sorts of things that we're going to have to question and um, think about and maybe align our, our behavioral consumptive compass with who our heart is about the future. Yeah, I, I remember that, you know, the first time I went hunting ever and it was, uh, I've had a, you know, a, a deep, I've been on a spiritual path for a long time and deep reverence for indigenous cultures, particularly the indigenous cultures of our, of our land, you know, the Native American cultures. And so when I went hunting, you know, it was very important for me to do a little ritual and, and like pray and bless the bullets and the gun and pray for the right animal in the right in the right way and in a quick kill and and all of this and we were hunting for four days and i never hunted before so this is my first time and i'd been consuming meat for my entire life you know so 32 when i went hunting i guess so whatever 30 years of consumption of meat and you get meat in packages and you cook the meat in the packages or get it in a restaurant and it's meat that's what it is. Went hunting and finally the last day I, I kind of made peace with maybe there wasn't going to be an animal. This this um, black buck doe came and it just kind of ran from 200 yards, ran probably to 170 yards and just turned broadside and just stayed there. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I could read like this was, this was my animal. Deep breaths, you know, had a... It, you know, 270 hunting rifle, deep breaths. The range was easy for the gun that I had. It was really dialed in and, you know, took the shot, clean shot, you know, and the the animal like dropped immediately. And, and 
I knew it was dying and I wanted to make sure that it was the quickest death possible. So I ran over and I put my hand on its head and actually it was a very powerful spiritual experience because it actually had porcupine quills that it were in its face and pointing and one was going into its eyeball, which must have been, it must have just got real curious about a porcupine. And so these quills were like going into its eye, which must have been horribly painful. So it's this like beautiful experience. It's unimaginable that this would happen, that this was the animal, my first animal that I took. And I just put my hand on its on its head and I had my knife and I, you know, said a little prayer and I put my knife through its heart. And it was there was something that changed in my life at that point that was different, you know, because I was intimately connected to the death of that animal and then carried that animal back. And then, you know, strung it up, skinned it, desanguinated it, quartered it. And I could feel like, oh, the tenderloin, this is the inner part of the leg that doesn't get a lot of movement. It's different than the haunches, which are constantly moving in every run. This is for changing directions, and that's why it's softer, because you don't use it as much. But otherwise, it's just tenderloin. You don't understand that that's a muscle that just isn't used very much, so it's more tender, it's more delicious for us to eat. And you started to, and you could feel the warmth of the meat and the and the blood of the animal and the smell and the organs and the whole thing. And and so now its skin is on my altar and the food, you know, long since been in my belly. But that one experience was just one little moment where my conception of meat changed. Now, it didn't change my meat consumption, but part of my desire is to actually you know, I'm not, I'm not like a big hunter and I know people really get into that and, and all respect for that because I think there's something very beautiful about that. Obviously, you can take it to where it's just a sport and you've lost the, the essence of it. But to understand meat and where it comes from and what, and what it is, you know, I think it should almost be a prerequisite for the consumption of it. Like if you want to have a chicken, like even for me, like I eat a lot of chicken. At some point now on our farm, I'm going to need to take that chicken's life. I'm going to need to pluck its feathers. I'm going to need to do the things to have the proper respect for the chicken next time I eat it. So what you're doing is you're talking about conscious consumption. You, you understand the full cycle of what happened. I have two stories to, to add to what you just said, um, neither of which I've said out loud. Last year, I shot a deer on my dad's property, um, immediately felt terribly bad. I did what you did. I said a little prayer of, of thanks, and we have a lot of deer. And I don't eat red meat that much, like unless it was raised in a spot. I haven't eaten pork in 10 years. But I do eat venison because we have them on our land. But my dad and I did what you did. We, we pulled the, the hide off. We quartered it, we processed it, we had the little grinder, and I've eaten every bit of that. It's gone now. And it felt like this full circle mm -hmm. thing. And if you're going to, I mean, those people that are anti-hunting, if they're going and buying factory farm beef, that, that they don't think it's an animal. It's just this beautiful, plastic, yep. tasty thing. They're not being conscious of the whole story. So... This is a microcosm for how we use energy and consumption in lots of things. It allows us to maybe have a deeper reflection about our consumption and our choices. Here's another story. I went with my dad to Botswana um, on a safari 
when I was in my early 20s. And I was just wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, looking at everything. And he was hunting uh, for trophies. And we were there with seven other hunters. And I didn't want to hunt. My dad offered me, I'm like, no, 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 I'll just take pictures. And I, we were there for three weeks. And in the middle of the third week, some guy said, I want a, a zebra hide for my office. How about Nate shooting a zebra? And so it was like peer pressure at the time. And I actually shot a zebra. They skinned it. The hyenas came and ate the whole carcass so that this guy could have a zebra rug in his room somewhere. And I have never forgotten that. But mm -hmm. the lesson there is I did it because of pressure saying, this is what you should do because I could. It was something that we could do. Mm. And how many things in our economic system are like that? Like we, we have social pressure to say we should do this and energy and everything else is so abundant and cheap that we do something that is against the grain of what we feel internally. And uh, that is one of those things that has stayed with me my entire life is I can picture every aspect on that place in the Kalahari where I shot that zebra, different than the deer, the deer yeah. I ate. Uh, this was just for status for someone that I didn't even really know. But um, my dad hunted his whole life. He told me that hunting um, is better than sex, the anticipation. But he recently told me, he's like, when I walk up and see that dead animal now, uh, I feel, why did I have to do that I, to kill that beautiful animal? And so mm -hmm. this is another example where dopamine in the short run uh, overtakes kind of our oxytocin, serotonin, other more peaceful uh, neurotransmitters. And now my dad, he's 81 years old. Um, he's matured enough to know why he did these things. And he feels shame is almost the right word about all these trophies that are in his house of these heads he got in Africa. And this is the cultural period that we've lived through, that we could do these things. And now we're facing some of the, because we're, because of media, because of podcasts like yours, we're, we're having an internal recognition of the time that we're alive in during this carbon pulse and that our decisions and our behaviors have consequences and I, I think we just need to really start to change our discussions and our consciousness and our aspirations. What is it that we aspire to as individuals? Um, Jamie here it talks about the loss of meaning in our culture. We had religions and then we had economic growth that provide meaning for us. But what is it that really gives us meaning? I would argue it's social connections and our connection with nature that we've long lost. Or a revivic revivification of our connection with the divine, right? Mm -hmm. Like a true connection with the divine, not what some dusty book says to follow and listen to. And not that there isn't a lot of wisdom in those dusty books, there certainly are. But the unmediated connection with the divine is also something that's deeply missing, which is can be this core first principle and first value that can come back. And in its absence, you know, what, uh, when you're talking about that, that experience you had with the zebra, it almost sounds like an initiatory right into a consumptive model of consciousness, a consumptive philosophy. Like this was your initiation. It reminds me of like, if you're, 
you know, and obviously this is a more horrific example, but if you have a child soldier and you want them to become a killer, you find their, you give them their first initiation to kill a, a human of some sort. It's like gang, gang mentality or like war mentality, like you get your first kill, son, or get your first kill, and then you'll be part of this zeitgeist. You'll be already in. And it was like, in some ways you could look at it, and I don't, and I don't say that this was intentional from your father or anything, because they were just a part of it. It was just part of the momentum, but it was like, this is your initiation into this model of we take what we want because we want it and we can, you know? And, and our culture has kind of promoted that, but human beings as anthropological, biological, cultural creatures, we have a huge, huge spectrum of how we can respond. Child soldiers in Northern Africa, like you say, they're 13 years old and they're killing people. The Jain culture in India, completely pacifist. They won't even eat something that caused a bug to die. And these are all manifestations of our historical phenotype. And it's just this, this energy bonanza is almost at fault here. Mm -hmm. And we're alive during this period and we're swimming in energy surplus like a fish swims in water. What is water? I don't know what water is. And, and so um, I, what gives me hope is that we don't need all these energy and resources to be whole, holistic human beings. Of course, it helps if you have stocked lakes and chickens and forests and make love with your wife for a whole day. I mean, these are all, <laughs> these are all good things. Yes, indeed. Uh, but we don't need all the energy and stuff to live fulfilling sure. lives. But telling that to the general public is not going to go well, at least at first. Well, we also have to have things that can replace what, you know, people are trying to fill a hole. They're trying to fill their emptiness. And this is something that Gaffney says, like life is defined by what you do with your emptiness. And, you know, not not to bring your father in, he's not here. And, and I have absolutely no judgment for this because we all participate in some way. But the idea that you kill an animal for the for the rush of that experience better than sex well we do the same thing with sex like where sex is actually not eros but what mark would call pseudo eros right like it's giving us the dopamine hit it's giving us the hit of the validation and the conquering of that person to get them into bed with you but we're not actually in the real true experience of it we're just kind of consuming it for that hit of eros that hit of deep presence that comes and then we're ready to discard it it's on and we're somewhat ashamed it's a very similar model to how we approach the sexual as how we approach this this kind of hunting thing if we're slightly off track yes not that i have any recent memories of making love to anyone for a day or let alone an hour, but you're absolutely right. And I'll say a third thing. Right before sex, the anticipation and the drive right before hunting, and I don't feel this, but I know hunters that feel this, sure. the anticipation and the drive versus after you have an orgasm and after you kill an animal, your worldview is a little bit different. And I think you can extrapolate that to our entire culture, that our economic system and our financial uh, pursuit of gains and all this, 
once we have that, then we can go and see the wider boundary impact on insects and on the oceans and on cetaceans and on future generations. And it's this expansion of change in perception. Um, like people before sex are different than people after sex. People before they shoot an animal are different than mm -hmm. after. And so how can we have that phase shift in our brain, in our mind, um, of the more mature post-coital, post-finance uh, awareness of our situation? I don't know. Yeah, I think we have to just re-examine the whole process, become very aware of our tendencies, and then allow ourselves to not make it all about this one moment. If sex is all about the orgasm, then we've missed the sex Right. If the hunting is all about the kill, then we've missed the hunting, which is the days of tracking and being out there on the campfire in the woods and whatever else it is. And then also the carrying back of the meat and the eroticism of preparing the meat and the and the gratitude that comes when I mean, I even feel gratitude when I pull vegetables from my own little garden. For sure. I'm like, fuck yeah, look at me making this salad or this sauteed kale with my own garden vegetables. And the you can bring in the eros, that life force all the way through it rather than having the consumptive mindset. So it's a way to just re-look at every aspect of our life and re-eroticize our life from the sexual to the consumption of food to the preparation of food and extend that throughout. And then we won't feel that same emptiness that will require those fast, quick hits of dopamine and all of these neurochemicals and all of this feeling that makes us temporarily full, but ultimately just feeds the hungry ghost of more, 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 because we're not actually carrying it through our life to the fullest extent. Exactly so. I don't know how to do that, but what you just said, that was spot on. Yeah. And I think it would help if we had different cultural uh, aspirations. Like right now we're marketed, you suck. If you have this product, you'll be a little bit better. <laughs> Yeah, and and so we're we're trying to keep up with the Joneses and the Kardashians in a material way. Man, I'm just fucking thinking about it too. Like, you know, you have a you have a a you know a wealthy parent, right? And and I did. I never, you know, this is people think because I had wealthy parents, they just paid for everything and you know allowed me to get on it. I'm so grateful that they didn't. They didn't give me a any money to start my business. And if I had a trust fund or I had this other stuff, I don't even know if I'd fucking be here. Maybe I would have gotten lazy. I don't know. I trust myself, but who the fuck knows, you know, but the fact that they were like, look, like, I don't know. I'm not even going to promise you inheritance. Like you got to figure this shit out. So grateful to my parents. But I remember my stepdad in particular, you know, like he, he started a company very successfully and, you know, came up from, he was a SWAT team officer and then a pressure washer, came up from, really came up from nothing, self-started, started his business. Business is, is called The Fleshlight. It's a, kind of a curious, funny story. Yeah, he founded The Fleshlight. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, right? So for those of you who don't know that, but there was a, there was a moment where he gave me, he gave me a Rolex, right? He gave me a Rolex. And fuck, I'd never had a watch like that. I'm in my 20s, you know, and I'm like making, what, 30, 40 grand a year, trying to figure out my marketing company, figuring this out. But he gave me this Rolex. And of course, super grateful, gave me a Rolex. And, and you know, he's, you know he's, he loves his cars and his Bentleys and his Rolls Royces, and he had nothing. And this was always what he dreamed about. He dreamed about being the man who could have one of these cars. And, 
and he was never able to have that, but now he does. And so he, this is part of his like, holy shit, I did it. But I think for, for him, when he gave me that Rolex, it was very much like the initiation with the zebra, which was like, here, son, this, this is what, this is what you strive for. You strive to get a watch like this. And these things are subtle and you think of them like, oh, that was very sweet. And then you wear the Rolex and you're cool. And then, then your friends go, oh shit, is that a Roly? Oh shit, look at you with your Roly. And then it reinforces this idea of like, a Rolex, that's what I need. I need one of these. Look at the response. And so you get indoctrinated, initiated into this mindset, but it doesn't work. It works for a little bit, for a moment, feels kind of good, but then eventually the Rolex just sits there and it's just one of the things you wear and doesn't even matter to you anymore. So when you track, uh, Robert Sapolsky has some great uh, um, neuroscience videos on this, that dopamine is a neurotransmitter associated with reward. But you would think that when you buy something, that that's when the dopamine starts because you have this thing, a Rolex or a car or some new shoes. It's the dopamine happens when you decide the motivation of getting something. When you actually have it, you're not getting dopamine then. <laughs> so in the same thing as your Rolex is we're not pursuing things. We're pursuing the feelings that our successful ancestors had that correlated with their success. Yeah. So the dopamine they had is when they were stalking an antelope or whatever, and then they actually killed it and provided for their tribe. We're doing the same thing in shopping centers and online at Amazon. We're getting the dopamine when we decide to buy something, but the wanting of things is stronger in our brains than the having of them. Mm. So we continually want to buy more and I'm just as guilty. I have a storage shed 20 feet by 10 feet that is jam-packed full of stuff from my prior lives that I pay $120 a month, I haven't opened the fricking thing in four years. <laughs> because we, we accumulate things in the moment sure. that give us this feelings like you got when you had the Rolex, but then we need to consume or do something else to get the same feelings in the future. This is our economic system is based on this mm -hmm. right now. And reinforced everywhere, reinforced everywhere every we look. So the corollary relative to your stepfather and your Rolodex is people now who are hearing this story and, and recognizing our energy, environmental, cultural, technological reality is they teach their young children not about Rolexes, but about our relationships with the river and the forest and the friends and social capital and the importance of all that. Because then those kids grow up and have a different sort of world outlook that is not only less energetically intensive on the impact on our natural resource balance sheet, but also the environment, but also it probably is a healthier, more balanced existence. Mm. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of people who, you know, if you go out to a place like, you know, Montana or even Minnesota or someplace like that, where there's just these kind of old fashioned, old fashioned systems where you're, you know, whatever flaws there might've been, maybe a little too much drinking or something like that, but you know, dad took you out and took you out for your first hunt out in the wood or they took you out to the stream and you went fly fishing and you pulled one of those beautiful rainbow trout out of the thing out of the water that you've been waiting in all day and casting your line and then you cleaned the fish and you ate the fish and you came home and there was something baking and it's like 
it sounds like this kind of like, oh yeah, of course. This, but there's some there's some real value in that in that simplicity, and I think you see it. It seems to me that those the people who have had that background tend to be happier in in a way. Their life is simpler. Maybe they're a little. They there tends to be a correlation with they like drinking a lot of beers and whatnot, and and but overall they seem to be a lot happier than like the hedge fund crew that you'll find in Connecticut or someplace like that, because I've interacted with all manner of different people, but like that Montana breed, you know, who are just out there in in the wild doing their thing. They seem to be like, there's something about the grounding of that where they're actually just a lot happier. And it just goes back to what we were saying earlier. So the name of my podcast and the name of my video is called the great simplification. And I chose that for three reasons. Number one is I'm trying to simplify complex topics in a teacher, you know, educational sense. Number two is because we've just had two centuries of complexification mm-hmm. that have been enabled by energy surplus that is probably going away in the not too distant future. Not going away, but starting to decline, which means we're going to have a societal simplification. But the third reason is what you just said is for many people listening to this show simplifying their lives could actually be great. We don't need all this complexity and access to gadgets as individuals in the global north right now. We don't really need it. And you're right. I mean, if you look at the highest percentage of depressed people in the world, it's North American cities. The lowest percentage of depressed people in the world are in rural communities in Africa. Now, they have other problems. There's HIV AIDS and there's poverty and they're not sure where their food's going to come from. But their social network is so strong because things are simple and they know where things are coming from. I was in Ecuador and there was this poor village up in Loma Alta in the cloud forest where I was doing this hummingbird um, netting thing um, for research. They had one soccer ball with 50 mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. in, and all they did all day is kick the soccer ball around the whole town and chase each laugh. other, laughing, totally happy. And then I got on the plane, plane back to Miami and people were screaming and wanting candy bars and misbehaving. And it's like our whole culture is on this sugar rush and the sugar is hydrocarbons. And we, we long for yet can't seem to find our way back towards this simpler life, which would be healthier for us and for the environment, but we're part of this embedded, growth-hungry superorganism, and and that's our situation, and we need to find a path through that, Aubrey. Mm, yeah. I had a almost an identical experience in – so I went on a trip – to teach martial arts to kids in the slums in Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda with a martial arts instructor. Now, I've been doing martial arts my whole life, but I'm not like fucking Chuck Norris or anything, but I knew enough to like help with the basics and I wanted to take this trip. The most overwhelming thing I saw, we went to the Soweto slum in Kenya, which is fucking gnarly. I mean, there's literally filth that slides down the hill underneath the tin shanties of these different places and the kids they had a soccer ball but the soccer ball had been stripped of all of the little plastic parts on the end and it was just basically like the inner bladder of the soccer ball with like a couple squares on it and they were doing the same thing they were just cruising around 
fucking laughing and kicking the ball. And then we brought like a couple, we brought like a football and we were trying to show them and they were like fucking blown away by the football. And it was such a refreshing, it was like such a refreshing experience to see how much joy was present. And, you know, and just, it was very interesting and such a stark contrast that I've never forgotten of all of the things. Like I've never forgotten that moment of like how happy you could be with so little, even with all of the crazy problems. A lot of it has to do with the social context that we're in. And I don't want to glorify poverty because poverty can be just gutting totally. and horrible. But even where I live on the border of Minnesota and Wisconsin, I go for bike rides and I will pass some 5,000, 6,000 square foot houses. Some of them have gates and just manicured everything and they're just pristine and quiet. And then I pass these trailer parks with double wides, with 40, 50 double wides next to each other. And everyone is surrounded by people in their own economic station. And they're out having barbecues and drinking beer. And the kids are biking and playing or they're fishing. And it's they probably have a lot of uh, financial pressure but socially, they're surrounded by people that are similar to them. So their actual experience is is very meaningful and even joyous. And I, this happens within miles of each other, like where I live. And so I, I really think um, that this is also a silver lining in what we face is mm -hmm. if we face energy descent together, I think it will bring out the best in people as long as some of these darker trajectories don't ensue. But we look around us for social cues on what's acceptable. And I think we just, we're going to have to learn the hard way that it's not all pecuniary wealth that, that makes us happy and healthy. I remember there was a book series called The Boxcar Children when I was growing up. And it was basically like a brother, sister, maybe there was some other people in the family who somehow got separated from their parents and they lived in a boxcar in like an abandoned train yard. And the whole story was about them just figuring out how to get food. And it was very kind of like Huckleberry Finn, but without that kind of adventure arc that Twain put in there. It was really just them trying to just survive in the boxcar and their relationship together and the struggles they got and where they got. And we see this in so many post-apocalyptic films where it's like, you know, you're just striving, you're figuring it out, whether it's, there's some very, that have much darker twinge, like Cormac McCarthy's The Road or whatever, but we've almost fetishized this moment. And I think preppers get into this mindset too, where we actually have so much abundance that what we really crave is to really want and to really strive and to really come together and need. And, and to, we, this, this ubiquity of, of abundance of energy and wealth and all of this We've chased it our whole life, but it's not satisfying. And we're so we're, I think if we look under the surface, we're going to see a deeper craving for this great simplification that it's really there. And that is probably the most powerful silver lining is maybe this is actually what we really want the most with the place that we are in our own evolutionary consciousness. As long as basic needs are met, totally agree with you. And I think Hollywood has not gotten this story. Right, because there's so many dystopian movies, Mad Max, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, mm -hmm. and there's so many environmental doomsday movies that run away climate change, but there's not too many movies that are navigating the pathway between fantasy and doom, mm -hmm. where there's 
some lower throughput future that shows examples of humans living and thriving with simpler technology, um, maybe a resource per capita of the same as 50 years ago or just picking a number 30 years ago, I don't know. Um, we don't have too many examples of that. Yeah, it, It's either techno-utopia, uh, we're going to science the shit out of it on Mars, or <laughs> Mad Max, we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. And it's the stuff in the middle where our reality is going to be. Mm -hmm. um, but so far that hasn't made it into our, our, our Hollywood blockbusters. Well, maybe we need to start writing some new stories, making some new films. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been such a pleasure, brother. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks Very for making the trip here. out here to Austin. And uh, so obviously we've mentioned a few things. The the film, The Great Simplification, incredible. You got some great conversations with Daniel Schmachtenberger. You got your own podcast. Anything else that you'd like to point people to if they want to go deeper? Uh, my YouTube channel, Nate Hagens, and we have a lot of historical videos. I'm going to be making um, an online version of my college course Reality 101. But for now, thegreatsimplification.com is the podcast or the Nate Hagen's YouTube channel, and you can find everything there. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We love you. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Nate Hagen's, everybody. I encourage you to follow his work. He's got some amazing YouTube videos. And make sure to check out the Great Simplification podcast as well. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for wherever I am in the world, whether it's Green Bay or Tampa, for coming up and sharing your love and appreciation for what I do. It means a lot. So thank you. I love you. And I look forward to hugs somewhere in some city at some time. Much love.